is the Rams Review Podcast. Discussion, insights, interviews and analysis. All passion, all Derby County. The Rams Review Podcast is proud to be part of the Fan Hub 100, where fans come first. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Rams Review Podcast. It's Corey, Jason's not able to join us today, but alas, I am not alone to discuss things about Derby County because I have a legend with me, a living legend, none other than the white-booted Blonde hair, winger, Gladys, Mr. Alan Hinton. Alan, how are we? I'm doing great. I'm getting old, but uh, coming on podcasts with people like you, Corey, is really, it's a fun time and I have no notes. I just, uh, just fire away and uh, well, let's, I, have some, I, let's have some fun. Well, yeah, I mean, for me, this is, this is awesome. You're one of those players that I grew up with stories of and I guess the stories are now legends I've grown up with the legends of them um and you are a measuring stick for players that I measure Derby County players against today which I'm sure you've watched Derby recently is probably not the, the smartest thing to do because they, they couldn't tie your shoelaces um but I want to start at the beginning of your career in 1959 because you started as a trainee at Wolves um was when you were growing up as a lad was being a professional footballer always part of the plan for you or did you want to do something else and then how did you get into playing football well i lived in a in a working class uh, town industrial town called winsbury which is halfway between wolverhampton and west bromwich and quite near to birmingham so i was really in warsaw was just down the road from me about a mile so there was a lot of soccer around football in those days of course but it, it became the love of my life. Uh, uh, my friend Roy Morley and I, each Saturday, I don't know whether it rained or, sh- or, sh- or shined, but we didn't care. It was Saturday. And we'd sometimes walk the eight miles to Wolves and then the next week we'd walk or, or get the bus if we'd made to find a few pennies from somewhere to West Brom. So one week it was Wolves, one week it was West Brom. In the midweek, We'd go as far as Villa, Birmingham, Warsaw, and it was like, it was a wonderful experience. And, and then uh, I started falling in love with autograph collecting. In those days, the players would actually write their name so you could understand and read their names. But today, they just scribble their numbers or whatever. So it's not the same, I don't think. But it was a great time growing up, I, I, I was lucky enough to go to the church school, St. Bartholomew's in Wensbury. I was also head boy in the big, in the big church choir. Uh, and our headmaster, Bob Davison, was also the soccer coach. But he was also the coach of Southeast Staffordshire boys team, which is like a select team. So I advanced and played on all those teams. And, uh, but my best friend was the brick wall in the playground. I mean, that brick wall, the beautiful thing about a brick wall is the ball always comes back to you. So I used to shoot with Roy Morley, bang, 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 bang. And then a guy 
that used to walk past our house uh, on his way home from work. He once said to me, he said, uh, young man, he said, uh, if you keep playing like that, he says, you'll be a professional one day. Now that, that was encouragement at the time when you really didn't get any encouragement from anybody. And I guess it was out there every night at 5.30 kicking the ball, me. So this guy could say nice things to me. And uh, I got all, all kinds of uh, support. Uh, plus uh, West Bromwich Albion came to sign me. Vic Buckingham was a very handsome, good manager at the time. I might have signed for them, but they didn't want me on the ground staff. And then George Noakes, who was the chief scout of Wolves, lived in my town, Wensbury. He came to see my mom and dad and he immediately wanted me on the ground staff, which meant full-time work, sweeping the... So I, in 1957, I joined the ground staff. And that was an experience being around Billy Wright and Ron Flowers and Peter Broadbent, they were my heroes. You know, cleaning up their uniforms and cleaning their boots was a pleasure. I mean, I was on the inside all of a sudden as a kid. And uh, I remember one day, uh, you know, I was a bit shy, believe it or not. Blonde haired kid, uh, five foot seven, 139 pounds, I think, when I was left school at 15 or just short of 15. And the players used to have fun with me. And I, I, I didn't know how to handle it. So, Peter Broadbent called me over one day and he said, uh, Alan, you don't seem to like it when those boys have the, when the players have some fun with you. I said, no, I don't like it. They're taking the mickey out of me. He says, they're doing it because they think you're going to be a top player. And, and, and that was coaching. And these are the older players and Wolves have many, many superstars uh, winning, you know, going into Europe for the first time ever before the Champions League started. Uh, Wolves were really a pioneer in the game. And uh, I had a nice little five, six, seven years there. I, I don't know exactly how long, but it was, it was a wonderful time. And of course, I never had a car, so I was on the bus with the fans. And uh, it, was, it was a great time in my life. It was a, certainly a wonderful beginning for me in my long career. Yeah, that Wolves side of the uh, early 60s is one that I've grown up with stories of on how the Molyneux pitch used to be, and they used to the water the field before the uh, European games, so that the European continentals couldn't didn't know how to play on the Molyneux pitch and everything like that. And you know, then in 1961, you make your Wolves debut, and you go from, like you say, you go from cleaning up the kit of your boyhood heroes, mm -hmm. namely Billy Wright, and you're in the dressing room with him. Um, was that was that a different experience? Because obviously you've been around the group for a couple of years, but was it different experience sitting in a first team changing room, looking across these? these people that you idolize and, and, and how good was Billy Wright and, and your memories of that debut game? Well, they were all so modest. Uh, only a few of them had a, had a car. Uh, I think the maximum wage was probably 20 pound a week. Uh, uh, Billy Wright one day said to me, uh, he'd been sent a, a new pair of Tom Finney boots. It was a great player, Tom Penny. And Billy came to me and he said, would I help break in these shoes for him? And I, I was thrilled. The problem for Billy was, I was scoring a, a boatload of goals in the third and fourth and sometimes second team. 
And I think Billy didn't want to take the boots back because I was I was hot. I was I was scoring goals, and and he never got him back. And I never offered to give him him back. But <laughs> that was the kind of feeling. Now today, the amount of money in the game and the amount of sponsorship dollars these players have, uh, uh, they have equipment. I mean, in my day, if you'd have given your shirt to the opposition. You'd have had to go and ask for it back because you wouldn't have had one for the next week. And the, and the uniforms at the walls were washed by Eddie Clamp's mom. Eddie Clamp's mother lived down the street, Waterloo Road, from the ground. She used to hand wash the beautiful gold. It was the best uniform in the country. Still very, very impressive. The gold, the old gold and black, is wonderful. And on a Friday morning, me and a couple of the lads on the, on the ground staff, we'd go down to Mrs. Clamp and we'd hand carry for six teams the uniforms to the locker room to, to send them out either in the skip bags or, or place them for the, the game on the Saturday. But it was a wonderful upbringing uh, for me and, and it, it made me into a man and a better player. Thank you. And so you were at Wolves and... During that time at Wolves, um, you quickly established yourself as a first choice um, in there. And then quickly afterward, you got your, your, the call to, to represent England. What was it like when you got the call from the FA that they were going you know, to call you up for England? And what was it like to make your debut against France and put that three lions over your heart? Well, that's, a, that's another story. Uh, <laughs> I didn't have a car. My mate Johnny Kirkham also lived in Wensbury. David Reed, Slipper Reed, lived in West Bromwich. So all three of us, we caught the bus from Wolverhampton. We got off in uh, Bilston on the 90 bus for the sole purpose of going to the betting shop to have a bet on the horses, because almost everybody on the staff used to bet on the horses. There was always a tip or another uh, flying around. So. I'm in the betting shop and a guy comes in and he goes, bloody Alan Hinton's been picked for England. And I go, that's me. And uh, it was amazing how I found out because today you've got cell phones and texts and uh, emails, but that's how I found out. So I went home quickly on the bus and uh, my dad and I went down the pub that night I don't think I bought a drink, not that I drank too much in those days, a couple of pints. Uh, but he was very proud of me. And then, and then there was a problem, uh, a potential problem that I think I handled very well. Uh, I got picked for England and it was on a Wednesday. I think it was October 21. And I was scheduled to get married to my dear wife, Joy. We're still married happily. Uh, at 11 o'clock on Monday morning at St. Paul's Church in Wensbury. So now I've got a problem or an issue. So I called uh, Alf. Uh, obviously, he was playing Alf then, but then he was obviously Sir Alf, well-deserved after we won the World Cup 1966. So I phoned him up and I go, uh, and I'm so proud even today the way I handled it, because if I would have said I got a problem, you know what he would have said? No, you don't. I'll get somebody else. But I said to him, I said, look, I'm looking forward to the game. I'm so thrilled you picked me. I have an issue. 
and I told him what the issue was, that I was scheduled to get married 11 o'clock Monday morning in Wensbury, and I was supposed to meet the team at, at five o'clock in the afternoon that day at the Hendon Hall Hotel uh, with the England team. So he said, hey, congratulations. I'll see you at seven o'clock at the hotel, which gave me an extra two hours. So the wedding went on. And of course, the wedding, instead of being a quiet 40, 50 people at the wedding, became a national story. <laughs> it was all over television, BBC. The police were controlling the traffic. Uh, it was it was a wonderful time. And uh, but of course, it went from being uh, a quiet wedding into a national a story. So it all worked out nicely. I did play for England. Uh, I was credited with scoring against Belgium, but in today's rules, it would have probably been given an own goal. But that was the beginning of me playing for England. And uh, Stan Cullis, I'd only played 26 games in the first team for Wolves. And Stan Cullis, he wouldn't shake my hand. He says, you're not ready. And I didn't like that, but that's the way Stan was, uh, very strong, very forceful, and uh, maybe he was right. Uh, but I did play in the game. We tied 2-2 against Belgium, a good team at Wembley, first time I played there. And uh, it, it was the beginning of, uh, we've been married 41 years now, and uh, excuse me, nearly uh, over 50 years, nearly 55 years. And uh, I've got three wonderful grandchildren and a great daughter. Uh, so, so uh, like, you broke the news to, to Sir Alf Ramsey. How did you break the news to Mrs. Hinton? Well, she was thrilled. And uh, uh, I'll tell you a funny story, though. Uh, uh, she wanted top hat and tails at the wedding. And... My dad was an ordinary working class man, a good man named Tommy. He said, when I asked him or I told him he'd got to wear top hat and tails at the wedding, he says, son, don't try and be something you ain't. So I said, okay, well, if you don't wear the top hat and tails, dad, you won't be able to come to the wedding. Anyway, reluctantly, he put the top hat on and the tails and he was a handsome man and he looked like Douglas Fairbanks Jr. He looked fabulous. So he wouldn't take it off. And I had to go to him and say, Dad, it's rented. We've got to take it back, you know. And uh, But he absolutely loved it. But his, his initial response was as a working class Wensbury man, be something you're not a uh, son. But... You know, it was it was a wonderful time, and uh, uh, you know, obviously, you know, I was playing for Nottingham Forest then, and, and and that was a nice little time in our life. How did how did the move? So that's what I wanted to move on to next, and it's a perfect segue. Is your move to Forest? I mean, you grew up near Molyneux. You supported Wolves as a as a as a young lad. Why move to Forest, and how did that move come about at this time? Because you know, I moves come about, you know, obviously there's a lot more agents involved in the game now and those kind of things like why move and, and how did the hey, move sorry, come about? Sorry, excuse me interrupting, but you've done your homework, haven't you? I, I have done my homework. I have, I have done my homework. 
So you, you're making me tell the story now, and it's an embarrassing story, but it's true. And, and I'll cover it in my book, obviously. So uh, we were playing against Nottingham Forest. The team wasn't doing great. And I'm on my favorite side, the far side uh, of the Molyneux. The fans were great to me. I always used to play along the touchline. They were almost, I, I, I probably knew most of them. They were so good to me. And this one day we're playing Forest and we're not playing well. And the crowd are booing. And being the sensitive type, I thought they were booing me. So stupidly, I put my two fingers up in the air like that. Shouldn't have done it. Turns out they were booing Chris Crow, who was also uh, in the Wolves team at the time. And so after the game, we lost. Forest were too good for us. Collis... Uh, called me into the office on the Friday before the next game. And he said, we've just made a deal with Nottingham Forest and Johnny Carey, their manager, wants to meet with you and I'm going to sell you. Uh, he gave me no opportunity to apologize to the fans, which I've done ever since. Uh, it was a misunderstanding. I know the fans would have forgiven me if I'd have had the opportunity to say I was sincerely sorry. Uh, so I go, I don't want to go to Forest. I'm staying here. So that weekend, he didn't play me in any team. So I spent the weekend thinking very deeply about, and I came to the conclusion, if he doesn't want me, the manager, uh, I'm better off not staying here. So I went in on the Monday and I said, Mr. Collis, I want to, I, I agreed to meet Johnny Carey. So I met him. And he was a very, very charming Irishman, gentleman John, they called him, and uh, quite rightly. So he sold me on Nottingham Forest, and, and I agreed to go there. But in all reality, I would never have left. But fortunately for me, and unfortunately for the Wolves Club, the Wolves went down slightly, and Forest had a wonderful... I had three out of four years at Forest, it was absolutely super. We got to the semi-final of the cup one year, uh, lost against Tottenham. Damn Jimmy Greaves scored a couple of goals or <laughs> scored one from outside the box. Jimmy Greaves was okay, I guess. He was a decent oh, yeah. player. It was, it was special, Jimmy. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, we finished second in the league to Manchester United. And then, uh, and then I'd also played another two times for England. Uh, against Wales. Oh, what else did I play against? I played against Wales and I played against, uh, I played against France and I played against Belgium and Wales. Uh, so I got left out of the team for the World Cup squad. And, and being quite a sensitive guy with no uh, advisors, attorneys or, or whatever they all have today. They all have a team of people working behind the scenes for the beneficiary or the, the, the good forward thinking for the players. So I, I cheered for England to win the World Cup so I knew it would be good for the nation, which it really was. But I was so sad that I was not involved. I felt, it, see what happened is Alf Ramsey 
did not like wingers, mainly because a lot of wingers like me used to play against him, and he was he was a good player, no question, but he was slow. So he couldn't handle players like me. So we wonder whether he didn't like wingers because he didn't like playing against them. But uh, you can't criticise. They, they went to a very strict 4-4-2 system when they're defending, and I wasn't very good defending. Maybe that hurt me. But I think my form was affected by that. And, I, and then, then Johnny Curry came to my house. Well, first of all, I had an incredible meeting with Peter Taylor. It was the brains of Derby County in terms of bringing in talent. I used to play on his cricket team, Nottingham Taxis. And well, Peter played on that team as well. So one night Peter met with me and he said, uh, I'm gonna, we're gonna sign a centre half. We're gonna sign a centre forward. Then we're coming in for you. And I was thrilled to be tapped up uh, in, in effect. So I went on doing my job and trying to be not talk about this meeting because I had to keep it quiet. So Derby County signed Roy McFarland. Then they signed John O'Hare. Very little money. And then that made me happy that Peter's, Peter and Derby County's plan was, was working out the way they told me. So he comes in for me, I think they bid 30,000 pounds. I think they gave me a thousand pounds. So the fee probably was 29,000 pounds that I signed uh, for Doug. But gentleman John Carey came to our house and he says, you don't have to go. You can stay with me if you want to. But I was so blown away with the enthusiasm and, uh, and the direction that Derby County was going under Clough and Taylor. So I went there and uh, you know, it was a wonderful move. Uh, we stayed in Nottingham in our lovely house in Ruddington. We had two children in Ruddington, Nottingham. And then once everything settled down and it wasn't an easy beginning at Derby because Clough was trying to push and provoke and goad you. And, and I didn't like all that stuff, but in the end I bought off on what they wanted to do and everything went honky dory. So we eventually about a year later, we actually moved into a beautiful village called Ockbrook. Uh, and in the village lived Alan Durban and his family and John O'Hare and his great family. And, uh, you know, I was there for 10 years at Derby. It was, a, it was a wonderful time. That's what I wanted to talk to you about next is we, we, we recently spoke to Alan Durbin um, and he, was, he told us about when O'Hare, McFarland and yourself were signed that he just knew when you guys came into training that this team was going to be on the rise and do something special because the level and the ability that you guys brought elevated the entire squad. Um, first of all, talk to me about Alan Durbin and how, what a wonderful player he was. Um, and second, at what point did it click for you that you knew that you'd made the right decision to sign for Derby and that this team was going to go off and, and do something special? Well, first of all, Alan Durbin, I bet you had a great interview with him. He's really a very educated man. He was a wonderful player. He's a wonderful person. Uh, he, he's like me, we're getting older. Uh, but Alan is still active. I think he plays tennis. He can hardly walk, but he plays tennis and golf. <laughs> he definitely, he definitely, he definitely beat me in a tennis in a tennis court. That's for sure. No, he, he's a. Uh, he, he, the way he talks about Derby County is really special. Don't forget, he played. 
he played in front of Ronnie Webster on the right side of midfield. Now I was on the left side, but there was me, there was Archie Gamble, and there was David Nish. And before then, John Robson. So in, in effect, on the left side, we had three people. On the right side, we only had two people, which was Alan Durbin and Ronnie Webster. But Ronnie Webster, I think he could have tackled five people. One, he was an unsung hero, played more games for Derby County than any other, I think. But Alan Durbin had this wonderful brain. And I knew when I had this ability to really delay the cross, which means all the defenders are coming over towards me. But Alan used to sneak around the back or come in very late. And I often used to find him uh, in, in fluid play. You know, he'd, I'd get the ball to the byline and he'd come in and John O'Hare and Kevin Hector had come in for the first attempt. And Alan Durbin had come in at the back and he scored many, many goals. Alan Durbin was a very, very intelligent uh, player. And of course, went on to be a very good manager and did a great service for the game. I'm sure he's still scouting for somebody. Uh, he's still active, but uh, we, we talk occasionally and uh, he's, he's made a remarkable uh, uh, quote about me in my book. And uh, what did he say? He said, he, he said I was a better two-footy player than David Beckham, which, which is a compliment. And he also said that he still, to this day, doesn't know which was my strongest foot. Now, that goes back to the brick wall at Wensbury and the dungeons behind the goal at the Molyneux at Wolves. And Wolves players always two-footed. And I tell young parents today, we've got a kid who plays soccer, particularly the little one, three, four, five, seven, eight, nine, maybe a little bit younger, bribe your kids and give them a piece of candy, chocolate, to kick with that other foot. It works every time. So uh, I, I guess finishing up on Alan Durbin, he's, he's a great friend. Uh, we speak often on uh, email or text or Twitter. And, uh, uh, but there was a lot of great players there. So walk me through, um, you go from the second division and within two years, you're league champions. I think we're stuck. Yeah, no, it happens, it's technology, it's, it's 2021, this, this stuff happens now. Um, so walk me through, yeah. you come through, you, you start in the second division and within two years, you're league champions. Um, a little bit, I wouldn't say a meteoric rise, but it was a, a quick rise nonetheless. And one of the main influences that you've touched on it very briefly is, is um, Brian Clough and Peter Taylor. What was it like to work under, uh, under Brian Clough? What was, what was the man like? Uh, we, we hear the stories, we read the things and we see the movies about him. What was he like from your perspective to, to work with and as a, and as a, and as a man? I think he was, uh, he was driven uh, because he was so annoyed that he had to stop playing early because he was the top player. He was a striker, which meant he was very selfish. And as a manager, 
he and Peter Taylor used to play the good cop, bad cop uh, role. And uh, Clough went down the path with me of hammering me, which I wasn't used to. And, uh, and then he changed his tune. And I'm sure Peter Taylor would be on it because I really liked Peter as a man and he was a big fan of mine. Uh, Clough was a fan of mine, but he didn't show it as much as Peter did. But in the end, Clough used to tell the players, get the bloody ball out to Alan, get him on the flipping wing. He knows how to play. And uh, I'm sure the players were going, oh, here we go with the old bullshit. But it certainly worked on me. And uh, uh, I loved a pat on the back. My dad once told Stanley Collis to uh, give me a pat on the back and, uh, you know, and, and, and he'll, he'll play for England one day. And, uh, that never happened to Wolves, but uh, Clough eventually, I think it took me about a year to understand him. And of course they were bringing in players. I remember bringing in Colin Todd, who was a great, great player. Uh, looked like a good player, was a great player. Beautiful physique, uh, played easy, uh, fast. Uh, if David would have been Brazilian or or Spanish, he would have been looked upon as world class, and I agree with that. Uh, I mean, the won the champ began in uh, I think it was seventy four, seventy five. Bruce Rioch, uh, Peter Daniel was another story. I mean, Peter Daniel came in to replace Roy McFarland, who had a terrible injury. And, uh, you know, Peter was not kept together by Colin Todd, but Bruce Rioch as well. And, uh, and the funny thing about Peter was the crowd once sang, well, sang it many times with Daniel for England. And it was a wonderful time at the club. And the contrast between Mackay and Clough was quite uh, alarming. Uh, Mackay didn't get stuck into the players like Clough did or Taylor did. Uh, but Dave McKay used to love to play five sides. Uh, and Dave McKay thought winning was easy. And, you know, I think th there's a terrible uh, feeling all these years later in my stomach about the way the board of directors handled the both Club Taylor deal and McKay Anderson deal. It was. Was they they must have thought about their own egos rather than what the fans wanted. You know, Sam Longson used to get in trouble. That the Sam Longson wanted to be chairman of uh, of the, the FA uh, committee, and when they they put him under pressure to, to tell him, you know, telling them to keep, keep their manager quiet, like Brian Clough was on TV every week. Well, he was the beneficiary of all these meetings on TV and the, and the humor the club bought. It was the club, it was the fans, we were getting 40,000 a game. And instead of Sam Longson laughing at them and saying, hey, I'm doing great. We, 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 we've got more season ticket holders than we've ever had. We've got more publicity. We get rid on the television all the time. I'm sorry you're not doing so well, Mr. Members, but I'm doing great and laughing at them, but he didn't. He let them push him around, and uh, and in the end, 
what happened is we played at Manchester United Theatre of Dreams in, uh, I think it was January of 73. We won one nothing. Kevin Hector scored the goal. We're sitting on the bus after the game. We knew that Clough and Taylor were probably hobnobbing with uh, Samad Busby and, uh, and enjoying the fact that we'd won there. And it was always incredible to win at Manchester United. Manchester United? And, uh, and on the bus, uh, Pete Taylor comes on and he's, he's furious. And I was close to Peter Taylor and he told me himself what happened. He said, Alan, I'm in the boardroom. We're so happy with all the work we put in. We signed the players. We win at Manchester United. Jack Kirkland, who was a hard-hitting uh, uh, businessman, had joined the board. Clearly knew nothing about soccer. He apparently had been to Peter Taylor after the game in the boardroom and said, can we meet on Monday, uh, Peter? And I would like you to explain to me what you do for Derby County Football Club. Well, first of all, that is absurd that he spoke to him that way. And Peter being sensitive, he reacted really badly to that. So all of a sudden, we have a nice Sunday enjoying the on the madness, all of a sudden, Clough and Taylor have resigned. That's my daughter's dog. So Clough and Taylor resigned. Roy McFarlane called me. We had a players meeting. And I actually wrote the resignation letter. Uh, and every player signed it. And we said... We insist on our being reassigned, not thinking in a hundred years the board of directors could possibly accept it because of the love affair going on between the whole town and the players and the club and the fans. It was paradise. So they accepted their resignation. So we got together as a team and we said, we will not play in the next game unless you reinstate uh, uh, and Taylor. In fact, we went further than that. We were going to go to Mallorca, to the place, Cala Mallorca, where we used to go once or twice a year with and Taylor and, uh, and not play on the Saturday against Leicester. Every player signed the letter. The letter just sold for about six thousand pound. And uh, I'm, where's mine? I mean, I wrote the damn thing. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I think Gerald Mortimer, the lovely old uh, Derby County journalist for the Derby Telegraph, I think he kept a lot of stuff. And I think he, when he died, I think that that letter was part of the stuff he kept. So good luck to him. So. I, uh, Roy McFarlane gets a call from Cliff Lloyd, who was the chairman of the uh, PFA, Professional Footballers Association, saying, Roy, if, if the team doesn't show up on Saturday for the game against Leicester, there's a possibility that you might get banned, all of you, banned for life. Of course, 
that was that was tough. So of course we we had to play. Uh, Jimmy Gordon, who was the trainer, run the practices, which were pretty lighthearted. We played on the Saturday against Leicester. The great Peter Shilton was in goal for Leicester. All of a sudden in the game, there's some cheering going on when there's nothing happening on the field. And it, we turned around, it was Brian Clough had found a way into the director's box, into the side of the director's box in the next part of the stands, and he got his arms up. Facing the fans on the pop side. And they were crazy. Now, Sam Longson, he thought they were cheering for him. So he gets up with his arms in there and they booed him. And uh, so, so what happened to the game? I went down the right wing and I, 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 I sort of passed across the ball along the six yard line between the six yard line and the penalty spot. In comes my old faithful Kevin Hector at the far post, scores the winning goal against the great Peter Shelton. I didn't know whether to celebrate or what. I didn't know. And it was a funny, funny feeling. But then the next thing is the great Stuart Webb got involved. Now, Stuart Webb, who was the general manager, secretary of the club, looking back, did an amazing job. Stuart was in the middle of the fans, the directors and the players and the media. And I have to tell you, his professionalism and his know-how really sorted it all out. Because when all of a sudden, when Clough and Taylor had resigned, there was no going back. Obviously, the board had made it very clear to Stuart that there was not a possibility. Uh, Stuart realized that Dave Mackay was extremely popular as a player and as a personality and as a winner with most of the, the team, McFarlane, O'Hare, Hector, me. Uh, so Stuart went and got uh, Dave Mackay. Roy McFarland, who was helped big time by Dave when Dave first came to Derby as a player when Roy was a boy at the back, and teaching him the game and everything and teaching him how to be a winner. Roy actually called Dave and said, don't take the job, Dave. Uh, but Dave took a position. Anyway, Dave was appointed on the Monday morning at the first meeting with Dave and Des Anderson. Dave was brilliant. He said, gentlemen, I played with you. I had a good time with you. <clears throat> Let me tell you something right now. I would be sick to my stomach if I picked up the newspaper and somebody else had got the job that I've been offered. So let's have some fun. Uh, and by the way, Clough and Taylor did resign and his speech was brilliant and we all love Dave. And after this, a very tricky beginning, even Dave went on not even Dave, the wonderful Dave went on and we won the championship again in uh, 75, I think it was. And, uh, and then they got treated very badly by the board of directors, which in effect, the directors 
made very bad decisions, anti-fans decisions, on two occasions. And the people that remember those days wonder what would have happened if Clough and Taylor would have stayed, which they should have done. If they'd have stayed, they would have got Nigel Clough and Archie Gamble's son, and Colin Todson was the decent player. So I have to blame the directors, and thank God we had Stuart Webb, who really found a way out uh, to make it happen. Uh, but of course, you know, the club today is, is struggling, and it's, it's sad to see. Which, which league title was more enjoyable for you to win? Was it the first one or was it the second one? Which one did you have more fun in the season and which one was more meaningful to you? Well, I played much more in the club uh, uh, Taylor uh, season. I was the leading goal scorer. So that obviously meant a lot to me. You know, it meant a lot to us all. The, the 1969, when we won the Division Two championship by a mile, that, that meant a lot because it was the first championship we'd won in many ways. And... Uh, uh, but clearly the Clough Taylor for me was the best. Uh, under Dave Mackay, I didn't play that much, even though I was very disappointed and upset quietly, but I liked Dave and I couldn't take him on, but I did get my chance uh, at a very vital time. I think Francis Lee was injured, who was a great player. Uh, I went in for, I think I went in for eight straight games around about Easter when the team was needing a different look, if you like. And we won six and tied one. And, and I felt uh, that I made a big difference uh, and, and, and fresh legs to a team that was at the crucial point of that season. So I felt very uh, much involved with the season. I really liked Dave and Des. I should have knocked on his door a few times and said, come on, Dave, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to play. But, uh, you know, I, I contributed nicely, but, you know, winning the equivalent of the Premier League two times uh, in the early 70s for the Derby County fans is a very, very special uh, experience. And, Thanks to YouTube, you can see a lot of the highlights. I love YouTube. And uh, if I'm feeling a bit down any time, I stick my name in on YouTube. And I, I just love some of those old goals. And uh, I'm sure a lot of the fans do that. And uh, so being at Derby County was a real wonderful experience. Alan, walk me through Juventus uh, semifinal. Alan Durbin, who we spoke to recently, said something fishy was going on. What was your uh, what was your perspective on it? Well, I've, I've never seen uh, I've seen Clough and Taylor lose the tempers, but this was this was like a knife sticking in their heart. Uh, what happened on the field that day in uh, uh, at Juventus was crazy. You know, we have a German referee. We have the German referee uh, giving a yellow card to Archie Gamble and Roy McFarland in the early stages of the game for nothing, very, very little, because they couldn't play in the second leg at Derby if they had a yellow card. So that was the first order of business. 
which was which was weird. At halftime, Peter Taylor happened to see Helmut Haller, the German midfield player, walking off the field with the German referee and obviously speaking German. So Peter Taylor got in the middle of it. Uh, one of the security people at the stadium grabbed all the Peter, took him into a room, uh, like semi-security uh, 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 room, I suppose. Fortunately, the fact that Clough and Taylor had suspected something not being right. They'd invited John Charles, the great Welsh international and um, former Juventus superstar, was invited uh, on our trip. So he gets in the middle of it, and, and Peter Taylor is allowed to watch the second half from the bench. At the post-game uh, press interview, Clough he wouldn't speak to the press. He said, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about the cheating bastards. That's what he said. And he believed that and he took that to his deathbed uh, many years later. But uh, then the, the second leg was at Derby. We were down uh, three to one, which means if we win two nothing, we go through on the goals away difference. Uh, I, the game was going pretty well. It was zero, zero. We got a penalty probably wouldn't have been given if the German referee would have refereed that game as well. But uh, anyway, I I played in the game. I really shouldn't have played, but Clifford uh, promoted me in the press as the secret weapon because I hadn't played in the first leg. And when a, a powerful Brian Club puts you under pressure, you do as you're told. And I really should have said, I'm not fit to go. Anyway, uh, we get the penalty kick. I know I was facing the great Dino's up. It didn't bother me at all. I was confident. I'd scored many goals into that uh, that end, that goal. And for one reason or another, I, I tried to hit it in the uh, to the left of the goalie in the upper V. Uh, I wasn't nervous, and it just missed the missed the missed the post. It didn't curl like I thought it would. Anyway, we, we did lose, uh, well, we actually tied the game and uh, Juventus went through, but uh, that still leaves a very nasty taste in my mind because I think if we could have got by the Juventus uh, game, I think we would have won it. Uh, but then, of course, Clough and Taylor went on to Forest and had a most remarkable career and they really should have had that in Derby. If it hadn't been for the directors being uh, amateurs, if you like, and I call them amateurs, and they're not bad people, but they didn't know. Uh, can you imagine what Clough and Taylor would have done in today's game if they'd have had billionaire owners? I don't think they'd ever lose a game. But are you are you certain that if Cluffy had stayed, Derby would have won eventually won the European Cup? I'm sure, because first of all, uh, the great players that. Uh, Taylor uh, found like Kenny Burns, Trevor Francis, Peter Shilton. Uh, well, there's many more. I mean, look at look at what they did with John Robertson. They they did they did an Alan Hinton on John Robertson. That that that's what I wanted to discuss with you. My dad um, wanted me to ask you this because he said that. John Robertson is the only player since he's been watching football his entire life that can come anywhere close to the way Alan Hinton was playing. 
Um, that, that's a great compliment for me. Who, who, was, who was a better winger, Alan? Was it yourself or was it John Robertson? I think he's got more trophies than me, so uh, uh, I think that answers the question itself. But uh, no, I, I, I actually, I remember a few years ago, I had lunch with Ian Story Moore, who was a very good player, John O'Hare, top man, and John Robertson. The four of us had lunch in West Bridgeford, Nottingham. And I remember when we were leaving the room, we had a wonderful couple of hours laughing, telling stories, uh, should have been recorded, the whole, the whole conversation. And I put my arm around John Robertson as I left, and I said, you know, John, you were a marvellous player. You really were, and I admired you greatly. You know what he said? You were pretty good yourself too, coach. And uh, uh, But John Robertson, his story, uh, uh, I actually detailed it in my book as to how they got under John Robertson's skin from the beginning. And, uh, uh, and the, the, the middleman there that sorted it out was John O'Hare, who happened to be John Robertson's roommate uh, on the road. And uh, they really tried to wind uh, John Robertson up because he was overweight, he was smoking, uh, he was going nowhere with his career. And they tried to unload on him in a typical manner. And John O'Hare was able to say to John Robertson, who was very disturbed by the outburst against him, give him a chance. They're doing this to you because they think you can be a good player for them. So give him a chance. And I think, you know, John O'Hare and certainly John McGovern, uh, who was also at Forest and, and it, it, it was bought to Derby by Peter Taylor and Brian Clough for 7,000 English pounds. I mean, what a career John McGovern had. And uh, uh, I do enjoy uh, John's uh, enthusiasm for Forrest and, uh, and Derby and the Clough and Taylor era. I mean, don't forget John McGovern and John O'Hare, they, they not only played for, for Clough and Taylor at, at Derby, they played for them at Leeds, which was a story uh, on its own, the Clough, the Clough time at Leeds. Uh, at least he, he finished up with a lot of money, uh, a severance pay, but, uh, and then of course at Forrest. And uh, there's no question in my mind, uh, as much as Dave Mackay did, Dave Mackay got treated badly by the board of directors. You know, it, things were changing. Uh, the board of directors used to worry if, if we overspent more money uh, on the road, uh, on hotel meals. And it was a different world then. I mean, most of the guys on the board were successful in their own way, but small time compared with the uh, Bramoviches and uh, the Manchester City owner and, of course, the wealthy Manchester United owners and uh, the Leicester City owner. It's a, it's a totally different world. And, of course, it's a different world for the athletes because, you know, the athletes get paid a lot of money today, and I'm happy about that. Uh, and, of course... The way that managers now, coaches talk to their players is Klopp and Taylor would be successful today, but they would certainly have to change their rhetoric uh, 
in terms of slaughtering players at times. Because uh, in my day, if, if, if they had a goal shirt and insulted you, you'd say, okay, I'll show you. And you'd go and do the job just to prove them wrong. And they knew that. Today's a different world. I mean, I know a story about one player uh, was taken off the field at half time, and the manager said, I'm taking you off because you, you're not playing very well. And the player turned around and said, that's okay. I'll never play another game for you. And then he went to his agent and he got moved to another club and made more money. So it's a, it's a, it's a player's game today. And as long as the, the game doesn't forget the great fans, uh, I'm happy for the players. I 100% agree with you. And, and I want to talk about the game today as well. But before we touch on that, one of the things I, I've come to, to learn about with, with Brian Clough was he didn't like people who, uh, you know, they, he didn't like beards. He didn't like long hair. He didn't like people kind of, I guess, not being extroverts, but he liked them to, to kind of conform to a certain way. So that leads me to my question is white boots in the seventies, Alan, what's going on with that? Uh, I think, uh, uh, well, what happened with the white boots is I got approached by Hummel uh, and they offered me a thousand English pounds to wear the white boots. Now, don't forget, I was making probably 110 pounds a week at the time. So to be given a, a 1,000 pound check up front, you could buy a house for three, 4,000 pounds, maybe less in those days. And that was a lot of money. And of course, you know, I was, you know, I was, I, I didn't think it would do me any harm as a, as a person wearing white boots. I, I, I tried them on and they were okay. Uh, so I wore the boots. I am convinced though that Clough, Knowing how sensitive I was, he got to know me pretty well. I'm convinced he told the players, leave him alone. Don't take in the mickey out of the white boots because we don't want to lose his good play. And I'm convinced that happened. I'll have to ask McFarland or Roger Davis or Alan Durbin or John O'Hare next time I see them. But uh, I'm pretty convinced something went on behind the scenes. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I think I had a good period of time with those white boots and uh, uh, they certainly didn't do me any harm. And uh, yeah, I had, a, I had a really good run. Do you still uh, have a pair? Do you still have a pair of them today? I have a pair in my bedroom. <laughs> I, I should have brought them with me. I, I, uh, I had bladder cancer uh, just over six years ago. And I remember, uh, I knew the operation was going to be for almost eight hours. And the night before, I was pretty uncomfortable. And I'm lying in bed, I couldn't sleep. And I, I looked up and there's my white boots on the cabinet there. You know what I did? I signed them. And I signed them because I'm thinking, maybe I won't come out of the uh, anesthetic or the surgery. And... Uh, they're still there, brand new pair of home of white boots. I don't know what I'll do with them. Uh, one of these days, I think my grandson wants them, but I'm very proud of them. And uh, 
and I was very pleased to get, uh, I'm, I got criticized and laughed at sometimes when I was on the wing, uh, on, a, on the, the, the opposing uh, uh, people's grounds. Uh, it didn't bother me. In fact, if anything, I, 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 people used to try and kick the hell out of me, but you know, in reality, the more they kicked me, the more I was determined to do a good job. And I think being kicked around used to motivate me. And I wasn't known as tough, but Peter Taylor said I was tough. Peter Taylor, I, I had moral courage. And I, and I think I did, looking back and seeing some of those films of me crossing the ball under pressure when fullbacks are trying to kick you. Uh, I, think I, had, I, I think I had courage and... Uh, and I wasn't as bad defensively as we make out to be. I think it's it's become a, a funny funny line that I wasn't very good uh, physically, but but I, I, I really was, and uh, my record speaks for itself. So all in all, I had a, had a fabulous career at Derby, and. Uh, uh, you know, what more can I say? Yeah, and so I want to talk about, first of all, before we talk about your, your American exploits, are you left or right-footed, Alan? Well, when I went to Wolves, I was a midfield player. But as I said earlier, I was 139 pounds, which is just short of 10, 10 stone, five foot seven. I finished up nearly five foot 11, not quite, but almost. And Cullis told me he was going to put me on the wing. He says, because you'll get beat up too much in the, in the midfield. Now, don't forget in those leagues, the fifth and sixth team of Wolves were, I think one was in the Birmingham League and one was in the Wolverhampton Works League. And you'd play against old pros and men and they'd try and kick you. And the boots were strong and ugly in those days. And uh, so they made me into a left winger. Now, originally, I was a right footy player. Uh, but then I started to work on my left foot. And of course, at Wolves, crossing the ball was very much part of their play and their build up. So I'd be on the field with Terry Warden and Jerry Mannion and uh, sometimes Jimmy Mullen, sometimes Des Horn. And You'd cross the ball to people like Ted Farmer, who was a wonderful, brave center, uh, central uh, striker for Wolves, and Jimmy Murray. Uh, so it was non-stop, you know. And then I, when I used to play uh, on the left, no coach ever stopped me going over to the right because I knew I could cross the ball with both feet. And uh, to be honest with you, if I, if I wasn't getting anywhere with the right back, like the best right back I ever played against was Paul Reaney at Leeds. He was a wonderful player, but he wouldn't talk to me, and I didn't like that. Uh, I like to have a bit of a conversation with people, especially the ones that were trying to kick me. But uh, so if I was playing against Paul, sometimes I'd go on the right wing to get out, get away from him, and, uh, and and that was always a plus for me. You know, plus I noticed today in the game that. I, I used to pull the trigger fairly quickly uh, shooting at the goal. Modern day players, I watch the games and I go, shoot. And they always want to have an extra touch and shoot and they all want to curl it. And 
Collins for the for the very few like Ronaldo, not Ronaldo, Messi and uh, uh, Mohamed Salah, who I think is a wonderful player. And uh, but some of these players try and do what they do, and they should just hammer the crap out of the ball. The old Hinton hammer, eh? Oh, that's what they said once on the tele- on the television. Because <laughs> I was watching, I was watching some videos of you, Alan, uh, in preparation for this, and just just generally. And your left foot was an absolute wand. And my dad always said you could open a tin of beans with that left foot. You could open a tin of beans, and Alan Hinton's going to hit it. And and you could. And then the other side, you've got the Hinton hammer. There, so you've kind of got you kind of got both kind of spectrums. You got the finesse, and then you've got you got the power side as well. Well, that, that all happened from the. Uh, it's on YouTube. Uh, we beat Arsenal five nothing, and I'm very pleased that Bob Wilson, who uh, who was really liked and admired over from the beginning of his career. Bob Wilson came to Wolves for a, a short while when we were on the ground stuff. And then all of a sudden he was he, he went missing and he was at Arsenal. He also went to Loughborough College and I always wanted to go there because I thought that's where the smart people went and I was not smart. So uh, Bob Wilson's uh, written a foreword in my book and I appreciated that. But, you know, the Arsenal game, we won 5 nothing. Uh, I think it was was it Hugh Johns or uh, and they said Hinton's hammer and I think I got one rocket goal uh, and I got three assists in the same game. In, in fact, in that game, Roger Davis, who was a wonderful player, great kid, great young man, still is. He's he's not a young man anymore, but he's, he's, he has a young uh, heart and a young mind. But uh, Roger Davies scored his first ever goal on one of my crosses. So, and then of course I brought Roger to Seattle and uh, and Tulsa, and and he did great for me there as well. So, uh, you know, I had a lot of good moments. And that brings me that brings me perfectly segue again, Alan, to your time in America. You, <clears throat> from my understanding, you came to America for um, as a family decision after the the, the death of your son um, to to try to. Um, just kind of start start fresh, and you end up playing in the NASL, which was the precursor to MLS. They know it kind of like folded there and then came back. And the NSAL for me was always kind of like, what a what a wild what a wild time, you know, um, of the NSAL. And you went from the Dallas Tornadoes to the Vancouver Whitecaps. What was it like for you transitioning? Because Dallas is not like Oakbrook. Um, how was it for you to, to transition as, as a player, a person, and a family? How was that transition to the States? Well, we were, we were struggling as a family. I mean, we'd lost our son, Matthew. It was everything in our life. And uh, I was running away to the pub, like most people when they have the, when you're traumatized, traumatized over the loss of a child at age nine. Uh, my career was coming to the end. We'd had business problems and uh, I got a chance, uh, Al Miller, who was the coach of Dallas, suddenly showed up in our village unannounced. And he, he knocked on our door and uh, we met and uh, we went out for dinner that night. And he convinced my wife and I that we should go to Dallas. So we decided to go to Dallas for six months, 
to get out of our uh, beautiful village and the memories of Matthew and uh, and try and rebuild our life, which was going to be tough. So we all went off to Dallas. Uh, I, I thought Jeff Bourne was going to come with me, who had been in Dallas the year before, uh, and we were friends from the Derby days. He suddenly got traded to Crystal Palace, so he wasn't going to be there, so I was in a panic. You know what I did? I went to Brian Clough, and I asked him for a favor. I didn't tell him. You didn't tell Brian anything. You just asked him nicely. And I said to, I said to the boss, I said, uh, I'm going to Dallas, boss. And uh, he was at Nottingham Forest. And I said, is there any way you can help me out by letting me have John O'Hare, who knows how I play, who were very good friends uh, with Val and his kids. And you know what he said? No problem. And now that was Clough, the nice side of Clough. If you asked him nicely, he would do anything for you. And uh, he was a very kind man in many ways. And he got more, he got more kind as he got older and he was kissing people. And, uh, uh, and of course, I wish he would have quit a year before he did. You know, seeing him with all those blotches on his face, uh, was very painful, uh, is very painful when you see that because what a wonderful career he had. But uh, Dallas was a great move for us. They put us in a nice apartment. We were picked up by the booster club at the airport, get to the apartment, which was very nice. The fridge was full of food. A couple of weeks later, in comes John O'Hare and Val and, and, and his kids. They moved in next door, swimming pool there. <coughs> Jimmy Ryan, the Manchester United player, was on the, was on the, on the ground floor. What he did with my wife was keep her busy. And Tanya, our daughter, who was then seven, kept her busy. And uh, I have to tell you, Al Miller, and of course with me writing a book, I've talked about it and I've found out stuff I didn't know. Uh, a lot of stuff I didn't know. Al Miller went to Kenny Cooper, the goalkeeper, who was from uh, Blackburn, played a little bit in, I think it was Blackburn Reserves, was the goalkeeper. And he, Al Miller went to Kenny Cooper and he said, I've got this guy, uh, he's 35. There's still some gas in the tank, so I'm told. Would you share a room with him and take care of him because he's really, really hurting and try and make him smile. And, uh, and that's exactly what happened. Kenny Cooper was wonderful for me. Everybody loved him. But Al Miller uh, really performed medicals for me and my family. And uh, we're still in touch. And uh, so Dallas, we were supposed to be there for six, uh, there for six months. I, I then went to the Whitecaps, came back to England. I went to the Whitecaps and uh, as assistant coach under Tony Waiters, the great Tony Waiters, who actually, we just lost Tony about a year ago. Uh, he was a great man. He was, uh, he used to let me move on and get things sorted. He supported almost every move I wanted to make. Uh, he, he was a, a wonderful human being and uh, 
so he wanted to sign Gordon Taylor, who went on to make, well, I think he's still there, the head of the PFA, Professional Footballers Association, making a few million a year. I met him a couple of years ago at the Dorchester for the manager's annual meeting. And I made him laugh and I said, hey, Gordon, I don't know whether you know this, but the reason you didn't go back to the Whitecaps in 78 was because of me. Because I told Tony Wade, is always better than you. And, and he started laughing. And of course, uh, you know, it was a interesting time, but I, I played for the Whitecaps in 78 and I played and I didn't go to play. And I got 30 assists that year, which has never been broken, never will, I don't think. 30 assists in one year. And uh, but don't forget, I had Kevin Hector and uh, John Samuels and Stevie Camber and Peter Daniels and John Craven and Bobby Lenarduzzi and uh, Gary Eyre and uh, uh, big Bobby Campbell and Phil Parks, the old Wolf planning goal. Uh, so, so I was really, really, and Vancouver is a great city and uh, I loved my time there. And then I got offered the head coaching job at the Tulsa Rupnecks for the 79 season. Uh, I went there uh, thinking it was a very solid club, but it was a, it was a challenge. Uh, I did bring Roger Davis and David Nish and uh, Alan Woodward, uh, uh, Teddy Dadakot, Sammy Chapman, Donald O'Reardon was already there, Colin Bolton. So it was home from home for me in, the, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we had a great year. Our final game was in New York in the semifinal of the playoffs. There was, I think there were 70,000 fans there, which, which, which is amazing. That was more than some of the teams in those days had in a year. But how did you how did you find the traveling? Because the teams were so geographically dispersed, and you know, me and you are on two opposite sides of the coast in the same country, and we've got a three-hour time difference. How did you find the travel and the logistics of how it all worked compared to how you were playing in in England? Well, it's very different. I mean, first of all. I didn't, go, I didn't come to America because I enjoyed being on an airplane. I hated flying. I'm not a great flyer now, but uh, I, I was desperate. So flying from Dallas to New York is about two and a half hours. Flying from Dallas to Seattle is about three hours. So that, that's well positioned Dallas in terms of flying around America. But uh, today, Major League Soccer, they have so many chartered airplanes. Uh, it's a different world. So sometimes we'd fly from Seattle to New York on a Friday. We sometimes get there at about nine o'clock at night to play the next day in Giant Stadium in front of 40, 50,000, uh, which they had for regular season games at the time because they had Palais and everybody and Beckenbauer. And uh, I'd take the players into the bar. I'd buy them a couple of beers. That was as much as they could have. Maybe they had more. I don't think so. But uh, I used to think it might help them sleep a little bit, bit better, but then Clough and Taylor used to do that. So a lot of the lessons I learned under Clough and Taylor and Mackay and Anderson and Johnny Carey and Stanley Cullis have really helped me uh, have a successful career in coaching. And I, I'm very pleased that 
you know, I learned salesmanship and showmanship off Clubfield. And I've always reached out to the fans. My teams have always played exciting soccer. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've been in Seattle now for 41 years. And uh, I'm well known here. I played home man soccer for 25 years here in the, in, in the GSSL, which is a great league. And uh, I have an immense number of friends. Uh, I'm very proud of the coach, uh, Brian Smetzer. I call him Sir Brian because he deserves that. Uh, I mean, won two NASL championships in uh, the last four years. Uh, they played good soccer, and uh, the Sounders are a big club. And uh, uh, I know I did my part in the beginning. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm looking for them to continue to be a top team for many years to come. So, so if I show up, Alan, to let's say you're coaching and I show up and I've got my shin pads and my socks all up and I'm in my, I'm in my kit and everything. What type of manager is Alan Hinton and, and what's it like to work under him? If I'm a player. I think I make the player smile. I think I make them feel important. I try to put them in their best position. Sometimes you might not be the position they think. I, I'll often buy them a round of drinks after the game if they've done a good job. Uh, the locker room is always lively. Uh, the coaches don't get changed in the same locker room as the players. They, we have our own room. But I just I try and get them to think like Dave McKay did, that winning is not difficult. And... Uh, I try and motivate them. Uh, sometimes, if you know a player is a really, really solid character, you might, like Steve Daly, for instance, one night we're playing the New York Cosmos in the Kingdom, probably 30,000, 40,000 people there. And Steve Daly was a good player, but I went to him this one time and I said, Steve, uh, I'm not sure about you. This is the week before the game. I'm not sure about you. And he said, well, you don't think I can play? I said, I don't know yet. And I'd walk past him. I wouldn't have a meeting in my office and cup of tea and everything. And I'd just mess with him. And, and I have a guess who was the best player on the field? Steve Daly. Because I learned all those tricks from seeing... It, it, it worked during my 20 years as a player, maybe 22 years as a player. And I'm a real people's person. And I like to motivate them and tell them the fans need to be entertained. And, you know, 90% of my career as coaching uh, was fun. I had some issues with ownership uh, who clearly was short of money and that was tough. Uh, I've had players who were not paid for weeks and I, and I backed the players. I'd call my old mate Tony Waiters and say, uh, I've got some players that were owed money. And he told me, he, he told me once, he said, get them the money because if you don't, nobody will ever play for you again. And that's the kind of network of people, uh, you know, I've had around me. So 
uh, I'm rambling here, but I, I do think signing the right players, making them feel important, putting them in the right position, getting the best people on the corner kicks and free kicks, uh, getting the defensive qualities right. Because if you defend right, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna stop the team scoring, then you're gonna go ahead and score goals. So I'm a great believer in entertaining soccer, and uh, I've always wanted a winger. And for me, the winger, if a winger plays well, you're gonna win uh, most of the time. And uh, so I always, I always tended, Alan, to to try to be a winger. But I think if you were coaching me, I think you'd probably find that my my best position is left back on the bench or left back in the dressing room or kit man or even water boy would probably be my left my my best position. You're being pretty modest now. <laughs> <laughs> um, one more NSAL question before I want to talk about MLS. Playing against players like Pele and Beckenbauer and Johan Cruyff, you'd played against some amazing players in Europe. Obviously, Eusebio, the the great players at Derby. Um, and, and within the European Cups, well, what was it like to play against to play against those kind of players? Yes, they were in the twilights of their careers, but you're still playing at these these world renowned legends of the game. What was it like to play against them? I think it was a, it was a sore meeting them. I uh, I met Pele a couple of times, and uh, I had a wonderful photograph of him and I, which will be in my book. And uh, Pele, Beckenbauer. Uh, Canalia, uh, Trevor Francis, uh, many, 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 Bobby Moore, Jeff Hurst, uh, Willie Johnson, uh, all came to play in the North American Soccer League. And at, at the time, North American Soccer League was a wonderful league. Uh, but obviously, eventually it failed. It failed because the Cosmos pulled the plug. 84 was the last year. And then uh, I was lucky enough uh, to do a lot of work in youth soccer. And I, I, I got involved with a good bunch of young players. Uh, it was really a big deal for them to be on my team. And uh, we finished up winning many state championships and uh, many of these young kids went to the big schools to play soccer and get an education. So uh, coaching youth soccer is a very special uh, situation because you're really not just teaching them to play soccer, having selected them, uh, and I have, I have a good eye for talent, but you're doing the parents a huge uh, favor or service. You're keeping the kids busy in a meaningful manner. If there's anything wrong with a kid, you, the coach can probably tell before the parents. So I think all the coaches out there that are coaching, particularly young people, deserve an enormous amount of credit for what they give to the game and to the families. And, and I've been very much involved with all of that. So, uh, you know, what do you do? And, and seeing the development of the game, Alan, when you, when you came to the NSAL, and and when you look back at that that time, and then you look back now at what MLS has become, MLS has just passed its uh, what twenty fifth season. It's its twenty sixth year. 
How have you seen the game develop in this country? And did you think when you first signed for Dallas that it would be what it is today? I think I'm very pleased. Uh, the fact that uh, Major League Soccer is, is uh, I would have to say it's doing well. Can it do better? Yes. Uh, has this pandemic uh, upset the finances of a lot of clubs? Absolutely. Uh, I hope all the clubs get huge money off the television contracts. I'm not sure they do. I don't know that information, but I do know that uh, there's some really good players coming through, American players now. Uh, I think most clubs like the Sounders have an academy that is well-financed and uh, providing education for the players as, pro as well as proper uh, opportunities to play. Uh, the Sounders, for instance, they've got several uh, homegrown players. I'm not sure about the homegrown meaning that 100% homegrown because he doesn't. Uh, for instance, uh, Jordan Morris at the Sounders who's actually out with the ACL. That he uh, tore when he was on loan at Swansea earlier this season. Oh, uh, I mean, looking back, I know it, it was, it sounded like the right thing to do to send him to Coventry, uh, to, to Swansea. Uh, I'm not sure he shouldn't have gone to a bigger club than that. Uh, I don't know what the financial arrangement was. I still don't know what the financial arrangements are now that he's injured now for a year. Is Swansea paying his wages or the Sounders or insurance? I don't know that, but I mean, that's not my business. But uh, Jordan Morris, uh, he learned his soccer player for Eastside FC that incidentally is run by one of my former players, Chance Fry, uh, Bernie James, who runs Crossfire, which is the club I founded many years ago. He's the one who, who uh, uh, coached uh, uh, DeAndre Yedlin, who... Uh, Newcastle, and he went, I think he's at Galatasaray now in Turkey. That's exactly right, but... Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he comes back to play here again. Then you've got uh, the Roldan brothers. Christian's a wonderful player. Uh, you know, I've watched him play Christian Roldan. He can play defensive midfield. I like him better when he's when he's pushing forward because he's got a good eye for the bounce of the ball and uh, where the ball's going to come or deflected. Uh, and he runs all day. And his brother, Alex Roldan, I had the pleasure of going on the charter plane to the, the final uh, uh, championship game in Toronto a few years ago, and I sat by Roldan's parents. What a wonderful family. They have three boys, they're from Guatemala. Uh, Christian went to uh, the University of Washington uh, under a very, very good coach, uh, uh, Clark. Uh, his name, uh, I forget, I know his father. Uh, anyway, um, and the other boy, yeah, they raised three boys, the Roldans, and the, the other boy is, I think he's a fitness uh, expert at the LA Galaxy. So uh, 
The Roldan brothers are really, really special. There's other players coming through. I know he's Kellen Rowe, who's come back uh, to the city where he was born uh, to play for the Sound. It's a very good move. I actually coached Kellen one time when he was playing for Crossfire and Bernie James. Uh, good player, very confident. And uh, uh, Richie, Spencer Richie has come back. He's a goalie from the university. He's come back to the Sounders. Uh, and, and I think all these players coming back here, this is a great city to live. And at the end of their career, like I just had a conversation with Andy Rose who played here. He's an English kid and uh, he's playing for the Whitecaps. And Andy was like me, he's lucky enough to have played in the great city of Seattle and the great city of Vancouver, BC. So, uh, you know, this is our home now. We've been here 41 years and uh, uh, I, I like what the club is doing. Uh, the fans here are special. Uh, the coach is the best in the league, the best in the country, Brian Smetzer. He has a who's who of assistant coaches. One's Precky, who I, I coached at the Tacoma Stars. Uh, I remember Tacoma him. He used to be at Kansas City Wizards, Precky. That's right. He was... Uh, I adopted him at the Tacoma Stars and then he went off to Portugal to play for Estrella Amadora. I went over there when we, we got the, the Stars going again with new ownership and I paid $105,000 for him. And he's, he's back here, he's, he's a wonderful assistant coach. Jimmy Traore has a championship league medal playing for Liverpool. He's a, he's a, he's a lovely, genuine, thoughtful coach. And then they have a Mexican international named uh, uh, Pineda. Uh, but they've also got the best goalkeeper coach in the league, Tommy Dutra. So, you know, the Sounders, they've got a very powerful club and very powerful group of fans. So uh, I think we're all looking forward to when the stadium can be full again. And uh, in the meantime, I'm very happy when I'm out and about. I'm not out and about as much as I'd like. I always bump into the fans and we talk about the club and where he's come from. And I, I'm, I'm very friendly with a lot of the old guys uh, who built the Sounders years ago and uh, through the GSSL and the Old Man's League. But there's never a dull moment. Yeah, I mean, Seattle, when you think about it in, in MLS terms, I mean, when you look at the fan base that the Sounders have, comparatively, like, yeah, I think they're probably some of the best, if not the best, and especially that Pacific Northwest region, when you have Portland, Vancouver, and Seattle up there, those are three diehard fan bases. And then you think about like the support that, um, that Atlanta United have had, but they don't obviously have the history of the Sounders. And I know the Sounders have reformed in MLS, but like you said, the Sounders have been around a lot longer than just their MLS kind of equivalent. So they have that longer fan base. And I know, you know, MLS is, MLS is growing, which brings me to my next question, Alan, if you could be MLS commissioner for the day, What's the one thing that you would do to push MLS to the next level? Uh, I would uh, I would insist on uh, doing what could have been done in the old days. I would insist on three, four, five uh, North Americans being in the starting lineup at all times. I think the league's ready for that. Uh, not necessarily to go to five right away, but I think if they started off by insisting on two or three, uh, I think some clubs, uh, uh, you know, three, four, some clubs 
uh, meet that criteria now, but I think, uh, you know, a lot of American players who are good enough to play in major league soccer go off to Europe. And, and I don't have a problem with that, but I have a problem with the average players going off to Europe when even the agents know they've got no chance, but it's a money game. And they go to, and they go to not like very strange, the debt, the, the, the Norway league or the Finnish yeah, league like, or you know, the, uh, the, the representative will make the money. Yes. Uh, yeah. I agree with you. I, I can't, I can't for me as, as an American who likes American football, I can't I like Christian Pulisic and Giorena and, and seeing Eunice Musa play at the top levels in the best leagues, that's fantastic. But then when you see the second tier kind of players that are kind of knocking on the door of the national team, and then they go to like the random Swedish second division, you're like, you, you might as well just be playing for Houston Dynamo. It's but, but if, much if, the same if, level. If you look at the roster and the amount of, the, the number of time, I mean, there's gotta be five, six or seven players now that can play in the American national team. And I like Bear Holter. I think he's a good guy. I've told him that. I've, I've met him a couple of times over the years. Uh, but there's got to be five or six or even seven that are guaranteed starters. Uh, you know, the, the offense is uh, getting to be crowded. Uh, Pulisic, one day you love him. And then another day you'll think, I'm not sure he's got somewhere. And then the coach keeps bringing him in and leaving him out and uh, uh, Tuchel, whatever his name is. And I'm, I'm getting to like him a little bit more. But Pulisic, I really enjoy watching him play. And of course, we all like watching him play when he does well because he's, he's very confident. Uh, but I, I hope one day... Major League Soccer comes big enough and strong enough to say uh, it, it's almost like at the Sounders when uh, uh, Obafemi Martins yeah yes when he, he went to meet with the coach Ziggy Smith who, who we lost uh, just over a year ago maybe two now uh, wonderful friend of mine uh, Ziggy was the coach and Obafemi Martins went to him in preseason and said. My heart is in China. And they let him go. Well, I would have said, yeah, but your contract is here. But the, but the league isn't strong enough to do that right now. Yeah, so I think for all over the world, the players seem to be having the upper hand when it comes to, it's like Ali Kane right now. What's going on with him? Yeah, and I think for me, if I look at MLS, I think, Two things is one, when a transfer fee is paid, that money goes to the league and the collective rather than the individual club, which kind of is kind of like, that's weird if DC United have paid or Seattle Sanders have paid money to develop this youth player through the system. And then they sell him for five or 10 million in MLS benefit, which under the single entity system. And I think the next step for me in MLS growth is to see players in their prime come starting to age a little younger and saying, you know what? I'm 27, I'm 28 now. I've played my time in Europe. And I think now's the opportunity to come to MLS. And when they start trending a little younger with the European players coming over, I think that's really gonna, gonna really step in. Um, and Alan, I've got two more things I want to discuss, two different, two different kinds of topics. You've mentioned it a couple of times. Um, tell me about your book, uh, Triumph and Tragedy. It's it's 
It's available now, isn't it? It's it's available in about two weeks. It's 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 being printed now in the UK. Uh, so in the UK, you can actually get it at uh, G G P Books. G for George, P for Peter, Books. G P Books at Hotmail. Dot co dot uk. Uh, and it's very efficient. Uh, they're taking care of orders, and we're, we're, we're finding a way now to get all these books signed. And uh, it's it's a good situation uh, in the UK in in America. It's quite difficult dealing with sports uh, shops right now because many sports shops have closed. Many sports shops are on the verge of going out of business. Many, many bookstores are closing. So I'm basically handling it myself with my daughter. So if anybody in the US wants to order a book, email me. And, and my name is Hinton. That's Hinton Allen, H-I-N-T-O-N at, no, Hinton Allen, A-L-A-N at live.com. And I'm on Twitter as well, so uh, and uh, it's at Inton Eleven. So you know, it's a good read. Uh, the reason it's called Triumph and Tragedies is because the tragedy of losing our son. Uh, that was the toughest part of the book. It's 310 pages, which is a big, strong, hard book, uh, hard, hard cover. Uh, 60 photographs. My ghostwriter is the great Charles Bamforth. Uh, who's an expert on beer, believe it or not, but he loves the wolves and uh, we've covered the wolves extensively, Derby, Forest, uh, North American Soccer League, uh, Sounders obviously a lot, uh, Vancouver, I'm getting orders out of Canada now from different people and, and quite a few groups are buying quite a lot to give to their friends and uh, it's a good time to give somebody a present. And uh, uh, so I'm very thrilled to, it's done now. It's, it's, it's not easy reliving your life. Uh, it's been stressful for the family, but it's done now. And it's, uh, it's being printed as we speak. What, what motivated you? What pushed you to, to do a book? I think, I think, you know, I bought Roy McFarlane's book. Uh, I've read lots of coffee books. I've read uh, Alex Ferguson's books. And, and I don't think soccer in Seattle has ever had a significant book uh, written. Uh, uh, I just thought it was something to do. Uh, I, I, I attempted it once to write it with the great Frank McDonald, who's a good friend locally here. Uh, and then in the end, we both stopped doing it because it didn't seem right. And then all of a sudden, when the, when the club started taking off again, I just thought, as I got older, let's get it done. I'm not doing it because I think I'm going to make a fat load of money. In fact, it probably cost me money, but I just want to get it out to as many people and uh, uh, there'll be an opportunity to get in touch with me uh, to discuss the book when they've read it, if anything bothers people or, or they want to know more. Uh, so I'm all in favor of reaching out to the fans of soccer, helping the game grow, 
letting people understand that I want to inspire coaches to see my story and I think it will inspire them and the players uh, because my journey has been it's been very fruitful uh, bumpy at times and you've had to roll your sleeves up many times and to show people that you can really do it uh, in coaching or on the field and uh, you know I'm, I'm, I'm going to be 79 soon and uh, I'm hoping to get over to, I was looking at flights the other day actually so uh, I'm fit enough right now to be able to go over to England for this book signing uh, I'm very uh, good contacts in Vancouver BC and of course here uh, in Seattle uh, but I'm thrilled with the early response I've got uh, three buyers right now that have all agreed to buy a hundred uh, which is a lot and I've got many 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 individuals 25 here and 10 here and I've got people buying the book on behalf of many of their friends and I think I'm a salesman, put it that way. Alan, if you can find your way from Seattle and have a nice little stopover in DC, uh, you let me know and we'll uh I'll get you, I'll buy you a drink and a meal and we can we can we can chat a bit more. Well that 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 that's very kind. But if the same when you come to Seattle, uh come here, I'll take care of you. Fair yeah. enough, fair enough. I'll I'll grab a plane, I'll see you tomorrow. Okay. Um a couple more questions for you, Alan. How has the professional game changed from when you played to today? How how's it different? How's it how's it evolved? How's it changed? Is it better? Is it worse? I think that I think the, the overall talent of the players is don't forget. I mean, they have dietitians today. They have uh, many many people behind the scenes uh, helping players prepare. Uh, on and off the field behavior. Uh, you know, I've, I've been in the bar after the games and there's been very few players, whereas in my day, the bar would be totally packed. Uh, I, I think if players in my day would have had the same opportunity to get as fit and as well taken care of as they are today, I think the great players of the past would still be great players today. Uh, uh, the difference in the game today uh, is the the money that the players earn. I don't think the players are as close to the fans as we used to be with the fans in my day. Uh, they certainly sign autographs way differently, which is not as affectionate uh, in regard to the to the young kid that they're signing for. Uh, but I, I admire the players today. There's some wonderful players. Uh, you know, it's, it's, the game in England's gone from almost exclusively English, Scottish, Irish, and Welsh players uh, into players from all over the world. I don't have a problem with that uh, because I think the best players should be on the best teams. And I admire uh, De Bruyne, fabulous player. Uh, he seems like a nice young man. 
I think he makes a million pound a month. I just read Alan Hudson talking about if he would have made a million pound a month, he'd have had a bar and it would have been free booze for all of his friends and, uh, and, and fans. <laughs> but, you know, the game is doing, it's, it's at the crossroads in many ways. I mean, I can't wait for the Champions League final between Manchester City and Chelsea. That, that will be... Who's winning that game? Mm. Who's going to win that game, Man City or Chelsea? Do you know, I like both teams. I like both coaches. Uh, when Barcelona was here in Seattle, I went to the press conference and I asked Guardiola, who was then coaching. He got all the three trophies on the, on the top table where he was doing the interview. And of course, being a soccer guy, I asked him a real question. And I said, how are you going to follow this, Pep? And he gave me a great answer. He says, oh, I'll take every game as it comes. And I thought, typical, easy answer, you know. But, yeah. you know, some of these coaches, uh, they've got so much money. I mean, Cullis, after he got fired by Birmingham all those years ago, having done what he did at Wolves, apparently had to go and get a job. Well, can you imagine Mourinho? He's been paid off. And he's, 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 done, he's done a great job for the game. He's been paid up many, many times. I think he's made something like 70 million just out of being sacked. No, but it's also they get the, uh, the best advice with how to handle that financing. And the uh, stock market has done well. Homes have done well in terms of going up in value. So everything's in their favor. But, you know, I, I don't blame the coach for getting big money. I think it's the owner who signs the contract and these owners are in, in some cases billionaires. Uh, can you imagine how much money that uh, they'll, they'll rake in from streaming video and television rights for this Champions League final? Oh yeah, it's going to be absurd. Even up with the most watched game in the world, maybe even more than the World Cup final, I don't know. But uh, I think if we can get this pandemic behind us and get the fans back into the game, I think we've got a good period of time to look forward to. I just want Derby County to sort themselves out. That brings me to my next question, Alan. What are your thoughts on Derby today when you, when you watch him, having played in, played in the golden era and, and you see where Derby now are, fourth bottom in the second division? How do you fix it? Well, it would have been fixed if uh, those directors of Clough and Taylor and Mackay and Anderson would have been stronger and uh, kept those winning coaches, championship winners, uh, instead of putting their own ego first and trying to be strict and old school. And uh, uh, the game's changed. Uh, you know, coaches are very powerful today. But players are probably a little bit more powerful. Uh, I mean, don't forget in my day, if, if you wore a, if, if you didn't have a shave, Goffey would say, get that off your face, you look like a tramp. And uh, it's, it's a different world today. And uh, I, like, I like the game. Uh, I don't go crazy to make sure I watch every game. I do watch YouTube. I'm very fond of uh, 
uh, Arnold White, who does a great job on NBC Sports Network. He began his television soccer career at the Sounders. Uh, I could see he was going to be a star. Uh, uh, I remember Mike Ingham at uh, uh, Derby Radio. It was pretty clear he was going to be a star. So, you know, looking at the game like I do, I'd love to find a future star who hits me. I don't need to check every player today, but I watch the game closely and I, I like to find out who I think is going to be the next star player. What what hobbies do you have away from football? What else What else do you enjoy uh, doing? Obviously, you like going out and socializing and, and things like that, but what, what are some of your other hobbies? I... I uh... I follow English horse racing every day. Uh, I don't bet. I had enough of that when I was playing. <laughs> uh, but I watch English horse racing. I love uh, William Buick. And I love uh, is it the Skelton family over the jumps. I think they're wonderful. Uh, I, I watch the stock market quite closely. Uh, over the years, done pretty well in there, uh, and and I I have a lot of friends, a lot of friends, and uh, we text each other more now than we've ever done. Uh, uh, I have quite a lot of big brothers, if you like, who are my age or a bit older, who have known me forever, who knew me when I had issues, and they helped me out, and they still do today, and I I'm there for them. So um, there's never a dull moment. Uh, I have three wonderful grandchildren. Uh, one's just graduated from college. Uh, uh, Matteo, who helped us uh, set, setting up this Zoom. He's just graduated from Santa Clara. He's waiting to go to law school. And the youngest <coughs> daughter, Isabel, is, has got two more years in college. So. Uh, life is good. Um, couldn't have found a better place to live than Seattle. It's really wonderful. It's, it has the seasons. I'm looking out the window now, looking at the beautiful green trees. And then later on tonight, I might go down to my favorite bar by the, the water. Uh, life is good. I go to the coffee shop every day. Uh, I went into the coffee shop today, Starbucks, and there was eight uh, policemen out there with their coffee. And I talked to him, and there happened to be one guy from Australia. And he, he didn't, and I said, you're from Sydney, and I was right. And uh, I said to him, I said, if I was a rich guy, I'd buy all you guys a cup of coffee. Uh, and they were laughing, but, uh, uh, you know, the, the world is a little bit complicated right now, but, in the end, you've got to try and do good every day and, uh, and kind and helpful to people. And that's what I try to do. And Alan, another thing I'll sweeten the pot for you when you when you come to Washington and we we hang out. My mom also really enjoys horse racing and has been around horses for a long time. So we can we can take you to a horse race as well. Oh, yeah, I, I, I love it. And uh, uh, oh, at Wolves, at Forest, at Derby. The best time we had at Derby is when Francis Lee and Rod, and Rod Thomas bought a horse called, uh, uh, oh, I don't know what it was called now. Uh, 
anyway, it, it won one day at 10 to 1. And uh, they didn't tell anybody, including me, and I was their mate. And uh, <laughs> they, they, they gave me £100. They put money on for me. But they didn't want me telling all my mates. Because they used to say in the old days, uh, if you give somebody a tip, they'll tell somebody, you might as well tell 111. Uh, so uh, they had this racehorse, and uh, I think it won twice. Uh, and then we'd go to the racetrack with Dave Mackay uh, when he was a player at Derby, uh, Utoxeter. And uh, Dave thought it was easy winning at the horses. I'm not sure he always told us the truth, but uh, horse racing... And I like uh, I, I like uh, being around good people, and there's a lot of good people in my life. And uh, you know, I, I'm you know, it's uh, you know, I'm, I'm still cancer-free six and a half years later, so I'm living on borrowed time. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot to be grateful for in your life if you've got oh, good yeah. health and you've got a great family. I mean, that that's that's the dream right there. Well, and you never want to go to the races with me, Alan, because I went to Subtle Racecourse last time I was in England, and I literally picked a loser in every race. So I have no idea what I'm doing when it well, comes. That's to that's near Nottingham, right? You what? Subtle. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Two more questions. Two more questions for you before I let you go. If you could talk to a young player today, a footballer, soccer player, in England or in the Pacific Northwest or anywhere, what piece of advice would you give them? Find a champion. Find a champion because you know your parents are going to be your champion. Find a champion who's done it, who knows what he's talking about, who cares about you and knows exactly what you need to do to get into a better player, uh, find a champion. I've had plenty of champions, and uh, uh, I salute the champions that have been there for me. But tell a young player to get a champion. Find a champion. And if you could give one piece of life advice to somebody, what what would that piece of life advice be? Not not football advice, just, just normal life advice. I think I've, I've heard it many times is, you know, treat people nicely on the way up because the chances are you'll meet them on the way down the other side. And I think, you know, that's that's an interesting uh, uh, quotation. But, you know, I've always, I've always tried to give of myself, never ever uh, looking for something in return. But I will tell you, because I've been that way all my life, uh, people are being really nice to me right now. And I, I really, I think, go the extra mile for your friends. I, I'll tell you one quick story. I took a boys team over to England two times. U16, took them to all the big stadiums, played against Arsenal boys and uh, England boys at Lillishaw. I remember being at... Uh, uh, I think it's 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 a castle in uh, in Derbyshire where the uh, Lord Derbyshire lived, and I took my boys around this castle, and then we're in the in the in in the bus, and we're going past this really old churchyard, and I said to the driver, 
Will you stop, please? And he stopped. And I said to the boys, we're going to look in this old church. First of all, there was two of the kids had baseball hats on. I said, you can get your hats off. We're going into the church. You don't do that. So we go in the church and then we come out. And I saw one of the boys looking at the old, old, old gravestones. And I thought, I thought this was a life lesson experience uh, that I was just going to share with them. So I called all the boys in and I said to this kid, I go, uh, how old did that person die on, on that gravestone? And he said, coach, 1752. That, that's how old the churchyard was. So I said, here's a lesson for you guys. I'll bet you every person in this that's buried in this churchyard, in which there's hundreds, if they could wake up for five minutes, they would tell you they could have done more for life, they could have done more for each other and been a better family man. And, and, I, and they went, they were quiet. And then we go into the next town and we stopped at a coffee shop and one of the young men said to me, coach, that speech was awesome. I also took a different group. We played in the, uh, uh, the New York soccer tournament. And I, I took the boys to the 9-11 site, which was then a huge hole in the ground. Now, can you imagine 20, 16-year-old boys and their families looking at this horrific uh, site of 9-11? I've never known him so quiet in my life. It was, it was a memory. Unfortunately, they'll always remember, including me, but I've always tried to find an opportunity. I remember one time we're in the semifinal of the state championship against a tough team. And I, Bernie James, who I love to death, is the crossfire guy. He got me in touch with the representative from Snickers bars. And the guy sent me a great big box of Snickers bars. So before the game, I put the Snickers bar box on the, on the bench. And one of the players said, what are you going to do with those Snickers bars, coach? And I said, here's what I'm going to do. If you lose, I'm going to take the box of Snickers bars over to the other bench to give to their players. And I guess what? We won easy because that motivated because they wanted those Snickers bars. And, you, and it's easy playing with young people's minds at times. But, you know, I, uh, I, I've been involved in some wonderful stories and, and, and most of them will be in my book. So, uh, uh, Well, Alan, I've, you've, I've took up more than enough of your afternoon and your morning and I cannot thank you enough for this conversation. It's, you are, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the other side of the Zoom, but you're one of my all-time favorite Derby County players. And it's been I've always, when I've watched those YouTube videos, I just thought if I could just spend five minutes talking to Alan Hinton about football, and you've spent well over an hour and a half with me. So I cannot thank you enough for, for coming on and speaking to me. Well, it's been a pleasure. And you did a great job. And I'm sorry I rambled on too much, but that's me. No, it, it's... I have, I have zero notes, I want you to know. And uh, I'm also going to get my hair cut in about an hour from now. So, well, you're uh, looking, I, I like it. I like it. You should, you should keep it going. All right.
right. Anyway, you did a great job, Corey. So give my best to your dad, okay? I will, Mr. Hinton. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And that's all we've got time for, everyone, in this episode of the Rams Review Podcast. And so there's only one thing left to say, and that's up the Rams. Up the Rams. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the Rams Review Podcast. We would love it if you'd like to get in touch. On Twitter, we're at RamsReview1. On Facebook, it's Rams Review Podcast. Or you could drop us an email, ramsreview at hotmail.com. Until next time, up the Rams. The Rams Review Podcast are proud to be part of the Fan Hub 100, putting fans first.